Good afternoon to all the delegates this afternoon and welcome to this webinar. Um, the webinar is focusing on the impact of political influences on university governance structures. So universities are indeed social institutions. They are institutions that can and should impact social change. So the question that's on the mind of um, of leaderships in universities is how universities contribute to building a just society. And what are the things that impact that uh, in an interconnected way? Now, if, if I look at the political turmoil that disrupted different regions in South Africa, and that's specifically in Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal, uh, that happened in July of this year, that has resulted in a renewed focus on the collective responsibility of higher education institutions to assist in solving the key challenges of poverty, inequality, unemployment, and indeed violence in societies. Now you probably would say that, you know, universities can't solve poverty, inequality, unemployment. And indeed you probably, you are correct. Uh, that is the role of government. Government needs to ensure that the policies are in place so that it would enable other parts of our, of our system, our economic system, the business, the private sector, the industry, but also universities to contribute uh, uh, towards uh, solutions and probably also interventions to deal with that. But the, the disruption in what happened in Kwaharteng and KwaZulu-Natal, uh, where there was a lot of intimidation, a lot of violence, and that brought us to the question of the violence in societies. So I think the crucial role that universities uh, need to fulfill, which is often impacted of, of, of fulfilling and trying to contribute society, is often impacted by political influence exerted on university governance structures. So although political complexities affect the governing of universities in various ways, student governance and student governance structures in particular are often extremely vulnerable to these political pressures. And the causal sequence of these political pressures regularly creates different tensions within higher education systems. And I think we, play, we see that play out in our uh, student representative council elections. Uh, um, we see that play out in other governance systems within, um, within the student realm. And today we have an esteemed panel who will make or try to make sense of this challenge and challenges, I should probably say, and will provide suggestions and perhaps advice on how to effectively engage and or manage this particular chance. So I would like to express uh, my thanks in advance to the panelists for their contribution. And I'm certainly looking forward for a vibrant discussion. But the person that will have the honor to direct and facilitate this uh, webinar and the discussion this afternoon is Voyo Muvoko, uh, who, who doesn't need any introduction. Uh, he's uh, an SABC anchor, and Voyo, thank you very much for uh, uh, um, for agreeing uh, to facilitate uh, and direct the seminar. So over to you. 
Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Peterson. Uh, thank you for to you and the team for um, allowing this uh, ordinary commonplace journalist to be part of this esteemed panel uh, comprising of uh, some of our country's foremost academics and uh, thinkers. We're here, as you have just said, uh, to discuss the impact of political influences on university governance structures. Now, much as uh, this discussion comes on the back of the turmoil we all witnessed in July, where parts of KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng uh, were severely disrupted, it's one among many, I concur, uh, discussions we should be having uh, consistently and deliberately. Uh, 27 years into democracy, and with so many challenges facing our nation, um, the last thing institutions of learning can do is to keep quiet or leave our collective destiny uh, in the hands of uh, people whose only interest is uh, serving their own narrow uh, needs and desires. desires. It is my singular honor, therefore, to be part of this conversation that, as I say, is both necessary and urgent. And without uh, wasting any more um, of your time, uh, allow me, and before I get carried away, um, to introduce our panelists for this afternoon. These are people who are going to share with us this afternoon, as you've just said, Prof, their thoughts on how university communities collectively can assist in solving the challenges facing our nation today. Poverty, inequality, unemployment, as well, of course, as such ugly incidents and the violence, the looting uh, that we saw in, 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 in July. Professor Mohamed Salim Badat um, is a research professor in the College of Humanities, University of KwaZulu-Natal. He is the former vice chancellor of the university, currently known as Rhodes University, and was the first chief executive officer of the Council on Higher Education. He has done a lot of international work. He has written and co-written books, journals, policy reports, articles, I shall not get into right now in the interests of time. Our second uh, panelist, Strekstrom born Professor Helman Hilliomier, first taught history at Stellenbosch University and then political studies at the University of Cape Town. He has been a visiting fellow at several universities, including Yale, Cambridge. He often publishes opinion pieces in South African newspapers. Our third panelist is Professor Tuli Madonsela, uh, who is currently the Law Trust Chair in Social Justice, as well as a law professor at Stellenbosch University. She's also the founder of the Tumamina Foundation, an independent democracy leadership and literacy public benefit organization and is a widely published author as well. A multiple award-winning legal professional and advocate with more than 50 national and global awards. Many South Africans know her for the seven years that she served as our public protector, 
credited with transforming that institution by enhancing its effectiveness and making it what I'm sure the writers of our constitution wanted it to be. Last but not least, Professor Chita Twala, who many of you would know as is the Associate Professor, Department of History, and uh, Vice Dean, Faculty of Humanities at, our, at the host university, the University of the Free State. He holds a PhD in history from the same university. He too has a substantial publication record on the history of liberation movements. He has also had visiting or research uh, fellowships at Harvard, Ghana, and California universities. Ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause for all our panelists. Now, um, each panelist is going to have 10 minutes max to present his or her perspective. Uh, as soon as all of them are done, I will then facilitate with their input studies, initial input studies, I will then facilitate an opportunity for questions and answers. Professor Badat, your 10 minutes starts right now. Thank you very much for the invitation to take part on this panel. In my 10 minutes, I want to begin with some conceptual clarifications. I want to argue that political influences are unavoidable and warranted. I want to identify some critical issues and challenges in this regard. And then I want to comment on roles and responsibilities of members of university governance structures. And I'll conclude with some observations on the July 2021 unrest. So by university governance structures, I mean principally, but not exclusively, bodies such as the council and the senate of the university. By politics, I mean struggles within a specific arena aimed at a specific set of relations. So in this term, we can speak of university politics as struggles that occur within universities and are shaped by that institutional setting of the university. However, the goals of the struggles within universities may not be confined to social relations within the university. The concerns of the contending forces within universities could extend to social and political issues outside the university in the national political sphere. So struggles within the universities are not only shaped by universities themselves, but also by national politics, if you like. By political influences, I want to refer to the political positions, views, preferences of individual members of university governing structures of individuals beyond the universities who influence universities, of intra-university organizations like students, workers, academics, of extra-university organizations like the state, political parties, popular formations and movements, civil society formations, and not least, business associations. And I also refer by political influences to political actions, developments, and events of various kinds, including the July events the so-called unrest. So it should be clear that by politics, I don't mean politics associated with the state alone or with political parties alone, but the gamut of ideas and actions that are of a political nature. In my view, individuals 
organizations and actions, events and developments, not only do shape, but should shape the, considera the considerations, the decisions, the actions of university governance structures. The nature of democratic societies, politics and universities mean that it is entirely appropriate that politics and political influences of various kinds bear on university governance structures. We really are not ivory towers. And that these political influences are deliberated upon by governance structures and that they inform the choices, decisions, views, and commitments of universities. This is necessary if governance structures are to fulfill their duties, which are not just financial, but include critically shaping the direction of the university in terms of teaching and learning, research, and community engagement, <laughs> defining the values of the universities. Many of those values are political, ideological values, crystallizing its goals, expressing publicly its position on key national issues, and, eva and evaluating its efficacy and performance and the like. In other words, making important judgments about a university's fitness of purpose and fitness for purpose in society. So let me turn to some critical issues. I want to submit that politics within universities and political influences of all kinds are not the problem. The critical issues in my view are that political influences on university governance structures occur, firstly, openly and transparently. Secondly, that they occur legitimately and without direct or indirect, explicit or implied duress or threats of force. Mass actions, in my view, that are directed at influencing university governance structures are perfectly in order. And that thirdly, that they occur in considered ways that advance the purposes and goals of the universities and maintain its integrity, and that they do nothing to corrode or erode or compromise those goals and purposes. University governance structures have to address and mediate political influences in principle, creative, and strategic ways. This means that they must do two things. Firstly, they must consider the claims, deliberate on their legitimacy, and decide whether and how to address them. And secondly, where necessary, they must refute other claims, especially where these claims could undermine the core values, purposes, and roles of universities. Let me go on to some critical challenges. In his classic, The Sociological Imagination, C. Wright Mills writes that freedom is not merely the chance to do as one pleases. Neither is it merely the opportunity to choose between set alternatives. Freedom is first of all, the chance to formulate the available choices, to argue over them, and then the opportunity to choose. The exercise of freedom, he goes on to say, requires an enlarged role. Yo, and Moema needed cash at once. I was flying around for bats. Mojaki helped with that. The exercise of freedom, he argues, requires an enlarged choice of human reason. With human reason formulating choices and enlarging the scope of human decisions. Mills, I think, wonderfully captures some significant challenges. From a government's perspective, how are we to formulate the available choices? How are we to argue over them? 
how are we to configure institutional culture and internal governance in ways that hold fast to what are the core purposes of universities that advance the public good and the values of academic freedom, institutional autonomy, and public accountability, while they also provide equitable and diverse opportunities for social groups and forces to engage and shape the university. Now, this may raise questions today, such as, is the current size of university councils appropriate? Might they be too large with 30 members? Should they be smaller? Is the diversity of representation on councils and Senate appropriate? And critically, do members and especially chairpersons of university councils have the knowledge and experience relevant to the objects and governance of universities as is stipulated by the Higher Education Act? And finally, are those who take and implement decisions held accountable for the manner in which they perform their duties and use resources as the white paper requires. So let me quickly speak about participants' roles and responsibilities. The members of university governance structures do not serve on those structures as delegates of organizations, institutions, and constituencies, even when they may be appointed by, by those bodies, for example, by the minister or by local municipality. The members participate as fiduciaries whose responsibility ultimately is to advance the interests of the universities. The Higher Education Act is absolutely clear on this point. Members must participate in deliberations of the council in the best interest of the public higher education institution concerned, not in the interest of the minister or government or anyone else, in the interest of the institution. The point is that the minister may, of course, raise concerns of the minister. They're also free to advance the views of the minister but they are not the transmission belt of the minister. The minister can engage the university directly, should she or he wish. And ultimately, the choices and decisions made by governance structures must always be in the interest, ultimately, of the university. And those interests of the university have to be formulated through open and thoughtful deliberation and rational and reasoned discourse and debate, as is befitting a university not through the dubious actions and practices that are sometimes all too evident on university councils. A final comment. The integrity, the quality, the efficacy of governance structures depends on the integrity, the quality, the expertise, and the maturity of the members who constitute them, and especially those who lead those structures. It depends too, in my view, on the glue, the cement that binds them and enables unity in action. Clear and explicit values, principles, protocols should guide the conduct and actions of members. Let me say something about the July events and end on that point. I have four, in, four observations about the July events. Firstly, as the Vice Chancellor, Professor Peterson has indicated, a renewed focus on the responsibilities of the universities is entirely appropriate. The roles of universities are shaped by the context in which they exist and operate. Those roles, both institutionally and through scholarship, through teaching and learning and community engagement, must engage with the context of their societies. Secondly, the purposes of universities and roles engage a deep, require a deep engagement with place 
both literally and theoretically. Place understood as geography, history, social relations, economics, and politics. All the things that make an empty space a lived place. So instead of trying to immunize ourselves from our surrounding communities, universities should actively seek exposure and collaboration because that's what they are for. Thirdly, a critical pedagogy of place permits us to imagine what forms of connection and action might emerge from an engagement with place and may allow us to cultivate possibilities that are central to education and to what a university is for. Here is an opportunity to knit the university in different ways to the fabric of its society and to connect with economic, social, and political challenges of its society. Final point, the silence for sometimes of universities collectively and individually on the July unrest was noticeable as well as inexplicable and distressing. I hope that there is honest and critical reflection on this by individual universities and collectively by University South Africa. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Badat. Uh, I'm sure lots of people already uh, are itching to engage you on those provocative uh, thoughts that you have just put in front of all of us. I'm going to now ask uh, Professor Hilomir, your 10 minutes starts right now. Uh, you can un unmute yourself, bro. Prof. Kalamir, are you with us? Okay, uh, great. We can get something. Yes. We've got you. Do you, do you hear me? Yes, we are hearing you loudly and clearly. Yes, okay. Um, just after the Union of South Africa uh, the, was founded on the basis uh, of a constitution that provided for complete equality of the two languages. The University of Cape Town decided, or it was then still the University Council of Good Hope, uh, decided to invite English-speaking lecturers from abroad and to teach in the medium of English. Now, this was in conflict with the Union Constitution, which provided for complete equality between the official languages. Uh, The government was in a quandary. It could decide to ignore the constitution or it could try and address it. And they addressed it by allowing the Afrikaans speaking community to establish Stellamos University. 
Now, the equality of the two official languages was maintained right up to the very end. Uh, in 1992, the, I was a member of the Senate of the University of Cape Town. The university tried to move uh, to abolish uh, the concession that one could write your examination paper in either English or Afrikaans. And uh, we were a bit mischievous. Uh, David Wells and I protested. That was a violation of a constitutional agreement. The university authorities were irritated, but we, we decided to make a point. I think it was a point that we felt that, the, that the, it is very necessary that people keep on honoring their constitutional obligations up to the very end. Um, The, what is surprising of the, and I'm talking especially about the historic Afrikaans universities, my terms, it's my term for universities we used to teach in Afrikaans as the only official language. The surprising thing of the negotiations was how little attention the National Party government <clears throat> gave to an issue that was of great vital concern for the survival of Afrikaans as an official language. At the very late stage of the negotiations, uh, Piet Marais, who was member of parliament for Stellenbosch, also the last minister of education, wrote a letter to President de Klerk, and he afterwards brought me a copy of the letter, in which he said that the position of Afrikaans at the different universities are, is far from secure, and that it is very necessary to, uh, to put down some very very clear and crisp rules about how the language dispensation be. And it was especially felt that there should be at least two Afrikaans medium universities. Uh, Marais tried to open the issue with, uh, with ANC negotiators, but they told him the, ma the matter was already settled. The South Afrikaans Academy for Kunstwetenschap, which was the main overarching body of the Afrikaans universities, also offered a memorandum to, to the cabinet on how and how many Afrikaans universities should be preserved in the new order. And that memorandum mysteriously got lost. Ruf Meyer, who succeeded Gerald as negotiator, said he couldn't find any trace of such a document. And then we had the episode where Jack Scarwell, who was uh, director general in the office of uh, President Mandela, tried to bring about the solution whereby two Afrikaans universities, two universities should be set aside with a special task to promote the Afrikaans uh, medium. Uh, he called a meeting of all five uh, university, uh, uh, all five principals of the ex-Afrikaans universities, I call it the historic Afrikaans universities, and asked him to come to agreement. And his idea was that Pretoria, oh, that's the, his idea was that Potsdam would be the two universities. But Pretoria objected, and Pretoria at that stage had the largest number of Afrikaans students, but it was on the rapid uh, transition to becoming an English medium university. 
Victoria University objectors said they believe that the status quo should be maintained and no special special concessions must be given to Afrikaans. Must be given to uh, university to promote Afrikaans. Um, the interesting case was the University of Orange Free State where uh, Francois Fester was vice chancellor. And he went out of his way to actually uh, prepare his staff for the, for the new order and to prepare it for a proper system of uh, parallel medium education that Afrikaans and English would enjoy co-equal place at the universities. But that was not good, for, good enough for some people and they, uh, 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 there was a, a case in the Constitutional Court and what I consider as one of the lowest points of the Constitutional Court, they decided there was no need for, for, uh, for parallel medium education. This was not, uh, there was uh, even an argument that parallel medium education will, would foster racial discrimination. Now at the, the, the university that was, apart from Potsdam University, and Potsdam University uh, made a very wise decision to at the at the Potsdam campus uh, to implement uh, instant uh, interpretation. Tians Ilov had gone to Europe. He had watched the European the the, the, the uh, and Brussels, the, the various governments coming together in the Euro 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 Council. And he decided to introduce uh, um, simultaneous interpretation in the classes. Everyone thought it was a bit of a, uh, a, a mad idea, but uh, with proper, proper, proper teaching of interpreters, proper monitoring, it turned out to be a great success. And it is, and I think, as far as I know, it is still uh, being maintained. Um, Perhaps the greatest threat to Afrikaans as a language was the whole uh, uh, rise of the rating system. That was something that blew over from the United States in the 1980s, where uh, ratings of universities, uh, ratings of lecturers became all the fat, became the dominant fat. It was not the interest of the community. It was the ratings of the university. Uh, and, and no one until very recently questioned, questioned that. In any case, Telemos uh, was, uh, it was introduced in South Africa in the 1980s. Uh, Jack DeVitt, a retired Oxford professor, was uh, appointed to, to uh, devise a rating system. He rated the various universities initially for the natural sciences. And in 1987, he brought out his first writings, and it turned out that University of Cape Town and Potsdam, University of Cape Town and Witwatersrand universities were way ahead at around about 11 points. Halfway was the University of Free State at five, and right at the bottom was Pretoria and Stellenbosch at two. Now, I've never seen such a collective shock imparted to an institution as when the news of the ratings became known. And Stellamos immediately decided to act very decisively. And what they did was starting to hire English uh, language uh, lecturers uh, and told them that they could come over to Stellamos and they would shelve 
or they would discard the customary obligation that they had to learn Afrikaans within the two years before they would get a permanent appointment. Then at the, at the time, uh, large numbers of black students were fleeing the Bantustan universities, universities established in the old Bantustans, and they were fleeing to the English campuses. And at the very same time, while the flight of the black students to the, the ex-liberal campuses happened, the English students fled to the, Afri to the historic Afrikaans campuses. So there was a large influx of English students with under no real obligation to, uh, to teach uh, or to, to learn Afrikaans in, in order to, to be able to qualify. Uh, you have two minutes left, Prof. Sorry to budge. How many minutes? Two. Two. Yeah. Just under two. Yeah. Now, uh, it's interesting that Stellarwash University decided to ignore all opinion, factual and scientific opinion surveys about what the needs of its, of its uh, traditional student corp, corp was. I, I was a member of the University Council at the time, and I was, because I was one of the leading voices speaking up for the retention of Afrikaans, at least of Afrikaans, uh, of a full offer of Afrikaans in a parallel medium uh, uh, in instruction. I was given the, the right to, uh, to, to commission a survey by a professional firm and find out what the students wanted. And 80% of the students uh, wanted Afrikaans medium, 40% wanted English medium. Uh, but the university decided to go for for English medium. So the university just completely ignored the wishes of the majority of the students or the Afrikaans community at large. Now the greatest casualty of that was the colored Afrikaans speaking students. That they, uh, they uh, didn't get the same kind of education at school as the white, white Afrikaans speaking students. And here they were confronted at university with the English medium university, where they, uh, where they, uh, the, for which they were, for which many of them were not quite equipped. So they had a disastrous uh, failure rate. Uh, the latest move that I have recently heard of is that uh, it's announced by the management of the university that they would be now ruling that after the former lecture there will be a brief summary in Afrikaans. Now, I've never heard of such a misguided, <laughs> almost insulting proposal. So Stellenbosch University is at the moment in a severe crisis. It has alienated most of its uh, alumni. Uh, it, is, uh, it is doing very well in terms of output. It is written on the, on the, you know, on the, on the, on the tables in the, across the world, uh, but uh, there's been a huge damage to the ethos of the university. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Prof. Uh, Professor Matunzela, the floor is yours.
we still can't hear you, Prof. Don't know if you've unmuted yourself. We still can't hear you, Prof. Can the technical colleagues help see if the problem is on our side, on, on Prof. Matoncella's side, whether it's just me? Um, for you, uh, um, I think we must just continue with the program. Um, I'm trying to contact Professor Madamsela. Thank you. Okay, let's move on then to Professor Twala. Prof. Uh, thank you very much, <clears throat> uh, Program Director. Uh, I am now thrown into a deep end. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm an ever ready. Uh, thank you for, for the opportunity to, to the institution to, to host this webinar. But I need also to, to come up front and indicate that in order to understand the uh, university's governance and student politics and activism, it is important also to historicize this because the political influences that are there emanates from the history part of our country. We cannot deal with these things without actually looking into the past and the impact these influences do have in the, do have in the present. While we are looking at the July 2021 political turmoil in South Africa, it is also incumbent upon us that we need also to, to investigate the whole question of the time on, and also to have staff and students at different universities to become cognizant of the political dynamics that are happening within the country. I want to argue that uh, you become a student or a staff member at the university, but you start by being a member of the community. Therefore, if there are social ills and problems at community level, you cannot divorce yourself from such because they do have an impact at your workplace or where you are schooling. Therefore, it is important for us that to, as universities, we need not to uh, see ourselves as ivory towers. We need to work hand in glove with our communities in order to solve the problems that we are confronted with. It is only by working with the communities that you do understand and then whatever we are writing in terms of engaged scholarship will be in, uh, influenced by what we get from the communities and bring that information back to our communities. I want also to argue and say the provision of higher education in South Africa by its nature is political. We, we cannot turn a blind eye on that one because by virtue of being a public institution, then that is a political stance and having an institution which is a public institution funded by the public purse, 
Therefore, it is going to be impacted politically. It is also important also colleagues to, to move with the times, the ideological times and the changes that are happening in different universities in order to understand what governance should look like. And then why should we have governance that is changing? And why do we have governance that is also catering for the times that we are living in? And the values that the universities are now propagating should also be in line with the times because that is also important. The whole question of poverty, inequality, and unemployment, it is political in its nature and it needs political so solutions. And a university, by virtue of being a, an institution of higher learning, whereby research is conducted, should also be influencing policymakers as to how can we deal with poverty, inequality, as well as unemployment. I said in one platform, uh, I was asked the question about the July turmoil or political turmoil in July whether was that orchestrated by certain individuals. I don't think that is, that is a question that we need to be answering. The question that we need to be answering is whether, what impact did that have on us as South Africans? And then somebody was asking as to are South Africans angry people? Do we have an angry citizenry as South Africans? And then my argument is no. We can't be having angry people in South Africa because nobody is born angry. You are not born with an anger. You develop anger during time. And then the anger might be because of the political situation and the environment that you find yourself in. Perhaps one needs also to interrogate the whole question of the role of higher education and why do we need to unpack these issues? And then for a good a, a, a public citizenry. It is also important for us that when we are as universities, when we embark on this journey of assisting our communities, we need also to take into consideration that we must not repeat the mistakes of the past. And then we must not come and have a Western solutions in trying to solve our African problems. And that is a problem on its own because you embark on Western ideas of solving African solutions, African problems, then becomes a huge problem because of the Africanization of our public institutions. And then we are sometimes divorcing ourselves from arguing on uh, decolonization as well as Africanizing our institutions. Therefore, it is important that we need not to be neoliberals in our agenda, but we need it to be pro-Africanization in our agenda and to stop as institutions at governance level, to stop the whole idea of paying lip service. It is important that all structures should be listened to. And then while we are listening to all structures does not necessarily mean that you agree to whatever people are saying. By virtue of being a public institution, we are not immune from our societal problems and the challenges that are confronting us. We've got the challenges of teenage pregnancy, alcoholism, and then we need to deal with that as institutions of higher learning. And how best can we impact through our findings, our research findings, to try and solve the problems that we are confronted with. And gone are the days, colleagues, 
whereby our research findings are gathering dust, uh, gathering dust in most of our libraries without any impact to what is happening at societal level. Therefore, the, the, the events of July 2021, one should take that and understand that it is just a, a, a reflection of what is happening at societal level. And then that reflection will definitely come to us as institutions of higher, of higher, higher learning. Therefore, it is important that as universities, we need to listen to multiple voices. And we need not to shy away to give platforms to people to air their views. And then we need not also to shy away from changing the institutional cultures. Because at some point you find that there is no movement in terms of change. Yes, I want to believe that change is painful, but we need to change if we wanted to move our institutions further. And then one of the changes that needs to happen as of yesterday in most of our institutions is to change the mindset and the institutional culture, whereby people are so obsessed with the past, which is negative, rather than to be progressive in thinking and moving forward in terms of listening to what the students are saying in terms of listening, to what staff members are saying in terms of listening to other structures of governance that are there at the university. We need also as universities, also I suggest that we need to embrace a, 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 a decision making from all other structures and to avoid as universities to come at the end of an event and become armchair critics without, without adding value in terms of what is the mapping of the way forward should be. Therefore, governance at institutions of higher learning I argue it should be a collective one, and then we needed to create platforms whereby people would, 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 would debate issues and then people to differ in order to agree and to agree in order also to differ. And then we also need as institutions of higher learning to circumvent the problems that we are experiencing each and every year, beginning of the year of, of student protesting. We need also to argue and understand why are they, are, are they protesting? Why are students protesting each and every uh, 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 quarter of the year? We need also to unpack that and understand the political dynamics and understand the situation and the environment that those students are, find themselves in. And it is only by understanding that that we can also map a way forward in trying to solve the challenges that are there. The political will, it is also important that if we've got NSFAS and then there is no political will in trying to address the challenges of finances from the universities to assist the universities, then that is going to be a challenge. And the challenge that is going to haunt us forever unless we think differently and unless we remove uh, 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 the paper, uh, 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 the paper, uh, the wallpaper from the cracked wall and try to fix the wall. We are not going to move an inch. We need we need also to be serving our we need also to be serving our communities rather than to be self-serving leadership. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Prof. And it does seem like we do have uh, Professor Matondela back with us. Prof, are you there?
Hi. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Prof. The floor is yours. Can I be heard properly? Yes, you're being heard loudly and clearly, Prof. Thank you for you. Right. It is a privilege to join this amazing discussion that is anchored on what happened in July. Partly, I'm just grateful for the privilege to Prof. Peterson and the University of Free State. I'm also grateful to work with you, Vuyo. You have reminded previously that the last time we engaged in a different, in different capacities, it had negative consequences for you. And thank goodness that you are here thriving with us. I firstly agree with colleagues that having government involved in university governance is necessary and inevitable. And the question is how and why. So starting with how and why, I would say, the Germans say, the temperature is set from the top, or the temperature is set from the head, and government is a custodian of the constitution. And I am, it is a custodian. It's not the only custodian. We always say the constitutional court is the ultimate guardian and the people themselves are custodians. But people are placed in government so that they are sort of the head of a country and they are custodians of what that country values. And more importantly, custodians of giving effect to the constitution. So if government has to get involved in governance of the university, there has to be principles that govern government's involvement in university governance. And I think that those principles can be derived from two places. One, it is the UN principles of good governance. In other words, the way government behaves should be in line with good governance but also the way government, government interacts with universities should be in line with promoting good governance at universities. And the United Nations sets up eight principles of good governance. It's participation. So the process should be participatory for everyone, all groups in society. Rule of law, whatever is done should be in accordance with the principle of the rule of law, which includes nobody is above the law, and, and of course, uh, the courts being the ultimate guardians of what the Constitution says. Transparency, responsiveness, which is meeting people's needs, and not just one set of people, but meeting the needs of the entire population or group affected by the decisions of that university. The fifth one is um, equality and inclusiveness. It is important that the way government believes or the way government behaves and the, and the impact of government on universities is in line with the promotion of equality and inclusiveness. And equality in South Africa is not equality of 
identical treatment of people regardless of unidentical circumstances. In other words, you can't say a narrow door that doesn't allow somebody with a wheelchair to go in, but allows somebody who walks without a, a wheelchair a, is a form of equality. So equality in the South African context in terms of Section 9 of our Constitution is about equal enjoyment of all rights and freedoms. And this has been confirmed in court by cases as Minister of Finance versus Van Heerden and S versus Makwanyani, among others. And I would add Daniels versus Kribante there. Uh, the second one is consensus orientation. So instead of a polarization, good governance requires that behavior should be promoting a, a consensus orientation in terms of our decisions, I mean. And of course, the seventh one is effectiveness and efficiency. Uh, that speaks for itself. But the last one, which is extremely important as well, is about it should be done in a manner that is accountable. So we say government can intervene, but it has to do so in terms of UN principles, and I've suggested the eight principles of good governance. But secondly, it has to intervene on the basis of our own constitution. And uh, firstly, in terms of our constitution, we have one of the best constitutions in the world, one with a preamble that clarifies exactly what kind of society we're we building, which is a, a society that is based on democratic values, social justice, and fundamental human rights. So again, the way government intervenes, it should be to promote that, but also it should act in that way. So um, um, chronism and underhanded interventions are not allowed. Uh, and that intervention should also promote basic uh, human entitlements. In a society where everyone's potential is freed and everyone's life is improved. And lastly, it should put uh, ethics at the core of whatever's happening. In other words, whatever government does should be in line with Section 195 of the Constitution that defines the principles of good uh, public administration. And lastly, and in line with accountability. So having said all of this, I agree with the colleagues that government can intervene, but it has to be transparent. It has to be in line with the vision in the Constitution and it has to be in line with Section 237, which is about putting the Constitution first. But within that Constitution is also about respect for separation of powers. And, and so the intervention by government to institutions should be in line with a general principle of a general law of uh, a law of general application that seeks to achieve the constitutional obligations, which include, of course, the obligation to advance social justice. So just some of the uh, negative interferences by government. Maybe it's not even government, it's political parties. I, I don't like the fact that student politics are now run on the basis of party badges. When I was a student, it wasn't like that. If you look at Fees Must Fall, we would strike deals with students and strike deals because we were, we, we were mediating at first. We would strike deals with the Vice Chancellor Adam Habib and with students. But once students went back and talked to certain people, things would change. And therefore that's where for me, I feel that uh, if there is an intervention by government, it should be honest, transparent, and in line 
with the constitution, not based on narrow party political intentions. So that's just one example of uh, interferences. U UP also, we had situations where some political parties were not very helpful in, in terms of pushing for consensus. But where has government, uh, for example, gotten involved in universities transformatively? I am from Stellenbosch University, and one of the things that has happened recently has been to transform the LLB degree. And customary law at some stage was seen as, free, as a fringe subject. Now it's been placed at the core of the LLB degree. Because everyone at any given stage, if you are a lawyer, will have to interpret customary law. But to interpret it when you never lend its tenets um, it is unfair to the people whose money you take and whose lives you, you, you impact on. But how did that happen? Because the, the Department of Higher Education and the, the regulatory bodies made sure that this happens. And they used their regulatory power to force universities to transform. Despite the Department of Justice having failed to implement Chapter 5 of the Equality Act, these ones use their regulatory power to move the needle. So that's good movement by government. But just lastly, to the say, I've, I've indicated where it was done rightly, where it was done wrongly. I do want to say that there are times when it, then it's done surreptitiously and, and undercover, as in fees must fall. Uh, Going forward, we shouldn't lose the baby with the bathwater. The truth is the state has some regulatory authority and we have a constitution that is said to be one of the best constitutions in the world. And young people are increasingly saying they don't want that constitution because it has not delivered freedom. The universities are not even teaching some of them, young people, how constitutions work because constitutions are like medicine if you, a doctor prescribes medicine and you don't even go to buy it or you buy it and you don't implement it, your life is not going to change. And many young people are rejecting a constitution that has only been implemented in terms of a fraction of it. I mean, on, on issues of advancing social justice, I see no impediments in the constitution if we teach young people properly about what the constitution says, but too, if we walk the talk in terms of what the Constitution says. But just in conclusion, thank you to Free State and thank you to you, Rio, for coordinating this event. Um, universities in Africa were always at the core of transformation of society. You had those universities that did astronomy. It was not for the fun of it. It was to teach society how to live better. And one of the things that we've done wrong is we use universities, some universities, including mine, to build a society of unequals. I am proud to be at Stellenbosch at this moment because it's one of the few universities, or it's the only university I know that has a restitutive statement that acknowledges honestly um, uh, the role it played in the part in advancing a society of unequals. And it now puts itself forward as part of the solution when it comes to building a better society. And through these conversations and through universities and government working together, we can do what Steve Biko said, and he was actually paraphrasing Pixley Kaseme. And Steve Biko said, according to Mbali Gajama, I quote, we have set out on a quest for true humanity. 
and somewhere on the distant horizon we can see the glittering prize. Let us march forth with courage and determination, throwing strength from our common plight and our brotherhood, well, I would say sisterhood as well. In time, we shall see in a position to bestow on South Africa the greatest possible gift, a human face. And Pixley Gassemek takes the conversation further and say, many continents have given us great developments, war, weapons, industry. But what Africa can give to the world is Ubuntu. I am because we are. I harm you. If I harm you, I'm harming myself because your welfare is tied up with mine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Madonzela. Oh, uh, your, our panelists giving us here quite a lot. I'm going to um, kick off the Q&A session, uh, but I'm not going to hawk uh, uh, it. And I, I hope that my one or two questions I'm going to ask that is, um, you know, to allow everyone else to, uh, uh, you know, pose their questions or make some comments. And I'm going to take the one that, uh, you know, appeals to me perhaps because of the uh, journalist that, uh, that I am. In your very last comment, Professor Badat, uh, you're talking about how with regard to the July events, uh, the silence of university was so noticeable, uh, but also inexplicable. And I am asking this because as in my previous lives, as a political editor, whether it was at the SABC or at ENCA, we always make a point, and I know that perhaps we don't explain this or people don't understand why we do it, but we always make a point of going to academics, most of them based at universities, for opinions, for interpretation, for analysis. And that's not haphazard, it's because we believe that academics are based in institutions of learning where is the, there is contestation of ideas. They come across literature that ordinary folk like me don't always come uh, uh, across. They debate issues. Uh, I mean, they, they get subjected to a great deal of peer, uh, of, 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 of peer review. So when you say, you know, it makes me think when you say that, you know, universities report are generally silent. Uh, 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 and, you know, what, what could they have done, perhaps? Because those of us who use academics and to speak, uh, uh, you know, assume that whenever they speak to the general uh, population via our radio stations or television channels, they bring with them, you know, the, 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 the interactions that they would have had with their peers, with their students, with literature. And, and everything else, bro. So thanks, uh, Vuyo, for <clears throat> an opportunity to respond to that. So I want to distinguish between individual academics who certainly mm. wrote about this. I did in the Daily Maverick. So did Stephen Friedman, so did Imran Bakus, and many other people were quite uh, involved publicly in commenting on what I call the July events. I'm speaking about the universities collectively as institutions. 
mm. a vice chancellor speaking on behalf of the university. Now, let me acknowledge as a former vice chancellor, it's always a difficult issue to speak on behalf of the university, as opposed to individual academics speaking their minds or within their scholarship. But it seems to me that those events did require a response, both collectively and individually, from the leadership of the universities as institutions. Even if it was to help to, even if it was to condemn some of it, okay? That didn't even happen. I mean, it was so noticeable that a major institution in this region of KwaZulu-Natal said nothing for virtually nine days. Now that I uh, consider a failure of leadership. If institutions like universities do want to play the role, if you like, of the conscience of society and promote the public good and all the good things that uh, universities claim they wish to do. So that's my distinction between individual academics and institutions collectively expressing a view, which is always difficult. I acknowledge that. Uh, Professor Khilomir, um, you, you said right at the beginning of your, your input, you, you, you did underscore the importance, I hope I got it right, the, the, the importance of honoring constitutional commitments. And then you went on uh, to talk about historical moments. But I got a sense that uh, to illustrate um, a point, but I got a sense that perhaps you got to the end of your 10 minutes, um, you know, before you could actually make the point, your point in the context of the, you know, topic or what we are discussing this afternoon in the main. Uh, I'm, I'm going to allow you, perhaps give you another minute or so to perhaps get to where you would have gotten if you had the opportunity to say everything that uh, you wanted to say for. Professor Hilliamir? Okay, it looks like uh, uh, we, we're having a problem reconnecting. Uh, maybe just try unmuting yourself, Prof. Oh, can I now clearer? Okay, yes. Can I go ahead? Yes, please. Yeah, now society, university, one of the main functions of a university is transmitting a culture. Uh, that is in the Lord Robbins report on Britain in the early 30s, early, uh, early 60s, he gave four functions to a university, and one of the four was promoting a certain culture. Now, in South Africa, we're almost scared of the notion of culture because it somehow has a slight whiff of apartheid which so overemphasized uh, cultural differences. But uh, our society, the, the point the, uh, why it's to me of importance is that Afrikaans happens to be, and this is generally acknowledged, one of the few languages that in the 20th century managed to develop into a university language from a 
very humble origins. Uh, what happened is that we, uh, it's the title of a book by a Polish academic who moved to Australia, that we, came, we became imprisoned in English. English is driving out to other languages. And the government, especially in the previous uh, uh, presidents, they don't seem to, hard to take that any seriously. They don't want to interview, intervene at all. How, is, how are the universities supposed to promote culture in South Africa? If you have got only English, English is the dominant language in virtually every, and every university, it is and conference and so on. And then the other 10 languages, other 10 official languages are simply languishing as, as public languages. And there I think the universities have greatly failed to, to come to some kind of agreement that we will all work together to promote more than just English culture. We will actually promote culture and we will actually try to, to be a, an example to society that different, different languages, different cultures should be taken seriously. Uh, Professor Twala, I, I mean, is uh, what Professor Philomere is uh, uh, talking about, what, what he's talking about, perhaps uh, a consequences, uh, um, if I may put it like that, uh, one of the consequences of uh, not uh, being able to, one, create the platforms you say need to be created for debate. But two, um, you know, being able, you know, to listen to their to our communities, and actually confronting, you know, the politics of some of the very institutions or the basis on which um, they were actually formed and continued to operate. But uh, I mean, uh, for years and years, because as you say, public institutions are by their nature um, political. Uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Vuyo. Uh, it is not a secret that our public institutions are, are political. And also it is not a secret that uh, some of our institutions should undergo changes in terms of values. Uh, if our institutions, for example, their values were based on the 1929 Bruder Bond ideas, we can't be embracing similar values in 2021 because we've got a changed constituency and then we've got a changed life and the thinking that we need to be advancing at this point in time. Change must happen, and change should also take into consideration what our public or our society is expecting of us. And there is a, a, a note on the chat box asking about the Western politics. The whole question of Africanizing politics or Africanizing our institutions it is based on the notion that we do have Africans who are thinking 
scholars, and then whose works are not in the public domain at our institutions in South Africa. And then my argument is, why do we relegate such public scholars to the periphery at the expense of using what is Western? But the argument is not to say we need to discard everything that is Western. But the argument is that what is Western does not necessarily mean that it is good, or what is African does not necessarily mean that it is bad. Therefore, we need to just oppose the two and then to try and strike a balance. Thank you. Uh, uh, Professor Matanzala, you know, interestingly, when uh, uh, Prof. Khalemier was uh, taking us through those points in history, um, you know, when some of these things happened, well, particularly at Stellenbosch University, um, he cited uh, a few factors, like uh, the Fed, as he calls it, uh, of the rise of the rating system. He also looks at uh, the, you know, majority versus minority when opinions are sought as to what should happen going forward. But decades later, interestingly, you say you are proud of what Stellenbosch um, actually, actually did. Respect to language or respect to racial policy? I would say I would say everything, but on the back of uh, of, uh, of of what you said, Prof. Here comes Professor Matunzela now saying, uh, "I'm not necessarily insisting of uh, 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 intimating here that you know uh, the rise of the it, it was because of you know the rise in the ratings." But those are the things, as you correctly pointed out, that actually happened that made or that led to Stellenbosch being the kind of university you thought. Uh, or you suggest it, it, it should not have been? Well, Stellamos is it's like a leopard. It's got many spots. Um, I think I was a student. I was a student of Stellamos, and I taught half my career at Stellamos. Uh, if we talk about apartheid, then uh, the main uh, uh, actor in formulating the policy of apartheid was not so much the universities per se, but it was the Dutch Reformed Church and especially the Mission Church. What Stellamos did was to say, like, Stellamos stands for an idea, and the idea was that it is uh, university education in your mother tongue. That is a very sound idea, and that is an idea which African scholars like Kwesi Pra, like, uh, like some uh, uh, rectors of Nigerian universities said, Look, we should move away from, from Western, Western models, Western languages, and we should develop our own intellectual traditions. We should develop our own languages and so on. We are becoming enslaved by two, and I'm talking especially of some Nigerian vice chancellors. We are becoming enslaved to the Western paradigms, and that is not going to help us decolonize ourselves. And they call Afrikaans the, mo the most successful, the most successfully, the most successful decolonizing initiative in Africa. This is African vice chancellors who are using that language. In South Africa, there is some difficulty in agreeing to that and so on. I can understand that there is a very hurtful history behind us, 
but uh, and I happened to have taught half my career at University of Cape Town, half my career at University of Stellenbosch. And what I what when, when I was still here a student and a lecturer, what we did this was actually to make certain we not simply parroting the English universities and the English culture. We tried to develop something original, something uh, surprising uh, very often. But uh, you look at the Afrikaans authors, uh, new authors like Andre Brink and Brighton Breitenbacher, people were trying to new avenues in literature and, and in uh, history writing and so on. That uh, I, uh, there was an effort at the University of Zululand, and I was a bit in touch with some people there. And there was an effort to develop Zulu as a, as a language of instruction. But at the moment, we are, and I'm a historian, first of all, we are actually eagerly awaiting uh, contributions by African scholars about the history. But funny, after the transition to democracy, African historians have, uh, in, in South Africa have largely fallen silent. I've, uh, I've, I'm, I'm editor of a book called The History of South Africa, uh, Illustrated History of South Africa. And I've got an African co-editor, uh, Bernard Mabenga. Uh, and uh, the point is, we actually have to have a debate about history in South Africa, about the different traditions of writing history in South Africa. But these debates are not taking place. We are not taking place that where African scholars and Afrikaner scholars and English liberal scholars are engaging about the history of South Africa. And that sense, our universities are almost sterile. <laughs> you know, I'm tempted now to ask Professor Twala to respond almost directly to what Professor Khilene says. Before, uh, Prof, I read you a question, I have a question for you from uh, someone who's participating, but I want to ask you whether when you said uh, neoliberal versus pro-Africanization, uh, uh, Professor Twala, were you talking about the same thing that uh, Professor Khilene has just described? I uh, thank you, thank you, Vuyo. Uh, I think uh, that uh, we are coming from two divergent school of thoughts in terms of looking at at history. Uh, I beg to differ on on the question of saying you don't have African scholars pushing forward and debating issues of African history. We do have African scholars propagating the whole question of African history, but the platform is not there. They needed to create their own platform in order to advance such scholarship. I can make an example of two projects. The first one, it is the Sadeti project which was initiated by former president Tabombegi in order to document the history of the liberation struggle in South Africa. And then if I may ask from all universities, how many universities do have the volumes of the Sadeti project in their libraries? 
I'll leave that question to the librarians of the different universities. There is another project which was called the Hashimumbita project, which compiled about nine volumes of the Southern region in terms of liberation history. But we do get some of the scholars who are still clinging into the past of saying there is nothing like liberation studies or liberation history because of this one-sided myopic kind of a narrative of saying history is history because it started in 1652 in April when Jan van Riebeck landed in South Africa. Then we needed to dispute that. And we need also to write about our own history. And somebody was saying to me, whether you shoot the black spot or the white spot of the zebra, you are still going to kill the zebra. Then we are in an attempt as South African black historians to kill that zebra. Thank you. Uh, it would sort of almost naturally brings me to um, uh, what you said, Professor Madonzela. And I know here that I'm perhaps risking uh, making Stellenbosch, you know, all we hear or this conversation is about. But I do think that there's value in, in asking you this question. You did touch on it in, uh, I think, your uh, very last uh, statement or two. But in a nutshell, what makes you proud or what has made you proud of uh, what Stellenbosch has done versus what it is known for or its history? Why are you so proud of it now? Apart from the fact that, of course, you are attached to the university. Yes, whatever I have to say, uh, you've got to take it with a pinch of salt because Stellenbosch pays me. But um, I was attracted to Stellenbosch. Some universities that know themselves have uh, uh, offers and international organizations had offers. I came to Stellenbosch because Stellenbosch made a decision by itself. Number one, to acknowledge that the past was unjust. Number two, to acknowledge that it played a role in that unjust past, in enabling that unjust past, and even in punishing and isolating those who were voices of reason, people like Bea Snodier. And then, but it now realizes that you cannot have a life that is based on sitting on somebody else's neck. You cannot have a, a life that is based on somebody else's suffering. That a notion of justice that is just us is not sustainable. And Stellenbosch University started this social justice journey before I came on board. I was just invited to join Stellenbosch University. And therefore, it's a multifaceted journey. You will see the kind of, um, for example, what they call visual representation. Stellenbosch has changed in such a way that buildings are named, uh, are, the art and culture in the university acknowledges that Stellenbosch exists in a multicultural, multi-ethnic society. To my colleague, Professor Hilomir, I do understand his pain 
And it's the pain of the past where the English and the Afrikaners saw themselves as the only human beings and that it was a struggle between the two of them and everything else was collateral. But I think we're now existing in a different situation where I think we've now acknowledged that it's wrong that English should dominate. But it's also wrong for this thing to be treated as if it's between the English and Afrikaners. I remember in the Defense Force, they just defined people as either Afrikaans or English speaking. And the Africans didn't know where they fit into this. So, and, and Prof. Philomia raises an important question about, for example, the, the policy decisions that have been made about Afrikaans have not punished the rich. They've punished people like colored people that come from disadvantaged families and that haven't learned English. So the, the consequences are definitely dire. But how we move forward, we have to move with empathy and understanding that it's not between the English and Afrikaners. There's a whole lot of humans that are lost in between. Why were African languages not developed? Precisely because Africans were not regarded as fully humans. I mean, I don't know, Vuyo and colleagues, if you know that Apart from just black people being denigrated in colonialism and under apartheid, it was a privilege for a black person to be exempted from being an African. It was a privilege. You had to apply to be exempted from being regarded as an African. So you can imagine coming from a history of that. And therefore, as we inculcate new cultures, we really need to immerse each ourselves in each other's shoes. And these universities have to tell the truth about what happened in the past. But Prof is also raising a question of African history and both professors are right about history. Each group is telling history from its own point of view as Prof Pitika talks about, it's either the lion's story or the hunter's story. What we do need now is an integrated story. That African history has not been told is not true. People like Professor Mbiki have been writing forever about Africans. How, what do we know about Ubuntu? We know it because Africans have been writing about it and the Constitutional Court was able to excavate that information as early as when it decided in 1995, the case of S versus Makwanyan. Uh, despite that history being hidden, it was excavated and that history is being told. The Mali scripts are just part of the story. Ames, uh, Ben Turok-san, uh, Professor um, Turok, has excavated information that tells us that mathematics started in this continent. And it wasn't just for the fun of it. Mathematics was integrated to the way of life, the architecture, agriculture, and everything that society was doing. So going forward, what is my advice? We just listen to Steve Bigger. We should forget about a society where justice is just us. Each one of us should come into the party and say, it's not just my pain, it's our pain. And as I ask that we move forward, I will also walk in your shoes. Thank you. You know, the, the, the points, uh, uh, Professor Matonsela, you just made, you'll take me back to, you know, the list of uh, critical issues, as he called them. Uh, that uh, Professor Badat uh, spoke about uh, in his input. And here's what I want to ask you, Professor Badat. Do you think that, I mean, no matter whether, you know, this 
the political influence we're, we're talking about occurs openly or transparently, as you say, should be a prerequisite, no matter uh, whether it occurs in ways that uh, advances, you know, um, universities and in ways that protect its integrity. Um, isn't it a fact of life, though, um, that those who are unhappy about the direction uh, the universities may take or those who stand to lose privilege will still, you know, find fault uh, with whatever direction, um, you know, that, uh, that the university may take. And no matter how well meant or in the interest of the university, that direction may be. I agree, Buyo. You know, my, my principle is that the process by which we take decisions and often weighty decisions, whether as universities or other institutions, is as important as the actual decisions. And that, that those processes must be transparent. They must provide maximum latitude for different constituencies to engage deliberatively, meaningfully, and so on. Okay? And there'll always be contestation within universities and within governed structures around the direction of the university, around what research should be done, what kinds of community engagement should occur and so on. And I think we must facilitate that. We shouldn't be afraid of debates as, as long as we participate in those with reason, with rational discourse and so on. So if I may say something on the language issue. When I was, <clears throat> when I was um, head of the Council on Higher Education, already in 2000, we had appointed a task team as requested by then Minister Asmal and Neville, the late Neville Alexander chaired that. And the point of departure of that 2000 report is very important. It was about maximizing the number of languages in which higher education could be provided in South Africa. So it was really about going beyond English and Afrikaans to really starting the process by which one day we could teach in Zulu or in Sufi. Unfortunately, that has not happened. It's been a major failure on, on the part of government post-1994. Okay. And so, in part, I agree with Khilyomi uh, that, you know, the point of departure should be not about taking away Afrikaans, but about how do you add other indigenous languages? And yes, he's actually right that as recently Mahmoud Mamdani, who's a well-known scholar, has argued about the role of Afrikaans as a decolonizing uh, language. So here's the, here's the challenge I think that government faces and that we all face as universities. How do you find the happy balance between language as a human right issue and language in relation to access, opportunity, and success at universities? How do you find that balance? Because I have no doubt that <clears throat> taking away Afrikaans, Afrikaans won't die as a language. I'm confident about that. But taking it away from higher education will diminish the language and the opportunities for research and so on. So my point of departure is really not about taking Afrikaans away, but about how do we create the opportunities for other indigenous languages to become languages of instruction within South African universities. 
Okay. And this question was particularly important for me because uh, often as journalists, you know, um, we, we report on these things. Um, we report on what happens at council, you know, meetings. We report when certain groups, you know, stand up and say, you know, raise the issue of Africans or, or vice versa. And we often reduce it, you know, to things, you know, that certainly from uh, what all of you have said, uh, it, it often isn't, um, you know, but I'm going to take a, a couple of questions from uh, other people too. Uh, Prof. Uh, uh, Twala, I'm a first year student at uh, UFS and all over the <laughs> continent, I think, I've learned so far is that based on West, it's based on Western politics and written by Western authors. So as a student who aspires to be in the SRC and eventually the political sphere of the country, how do we address African problems and center African governance in our political structures if the content we are, th we are taught in class is focused on Western politics? Professor Tola? Uh, Mr. Vuyo, I, I, I guess I've answered that question uh, from the chat box, uh, whereby I alluded to the fact that uh, it does not mean that when you have Western material, therefore you, you discard it altogether and replace it with African one. You need to strike a balance in order to understand the two worlds. Thank you. Okay. Uh, the, the other question, God, is, uh, says, uh, given the approach to the topic by Prof. Guillermier, uh, should the question of universities' language policy have been left ultimately to the CC, presumably the Constitutional Court, or should the government have intervened before the CC made a determination, or, or before the CC made a determination, as you say, or should it have been left to institutions based on institutional autonomy, which autonomy um, made, which, which autonomy should, of course, have been shaped and informed by the values and the objectives of the Constitution, or would institutions be too partisan on the matter? Prof. Colomir? Well, I think our constitution is very often uh, held as I do, one of the best constitutions ever. But it certainly uh, is a very defective constitution in the sense that it is devoid from its grassroots. There is no constituency pressure. If uh, we had been uh, operating under the previous system that we were governed under until 1994, then you had had various uh, constituencies. Uh, Stellenbosch would have been a constituency. Uh, Cape Town would have had four, five or six different seats. And, they, and no one would have dared here at Stellenbosch to propose that we do away with Afrikaans as a medium of instruction. That, that person would certainly have been defeated in any, any electoral contest. So we must remember that our constitution takes away the grassroots influence at, a, at quite a considerable cost to human liberties. Uh, we, we have in our constitutional court, which sometimes give good judgments, but sometimes 
shows themselves to be rather unsympathetic towards uh, issues concerning minorities. But we must remember we uh, are the, the, uh, the, the fact that we no longer have got any grassroots constituencies that could immediately make their, uh, their influence felt has got important consequences. I spoke to a very prominent advisor of the European Commission, and he teaches at Freiburg, Freiburg uh, University in Switzerland. The medium of instruction is uh, French. The neighboring areas are German. He said, if we allow the faculty to choose, they would choose English tomorrow as a tremendous damage to the, to the language and to the people itself. Academics, and I speak to someone who's the only job I've ever done was an academic. I taught half my career at Stellenbosch, the second half at University of Cape Town. Academics can be very selfish people. They do what suits them best. Now it's increasingly so. They do so even if it comes at the expense of the students. And somehow, I don't think the government is aware enough of it because initially they welcomed the move away, uh, taking away uh, Afrikaans rights. It was seen as a just form of punishment and so on. But uh, as someone, and I, someone that I greatly respect and I consider a very great friend, Neville Alexander, he believed it was very short-sighted to embark on such a policy. And he always said to me, I'll help you too with Afrikaans as long as you fight the same fight for the other indigenous languages. But this dominance of English is, is in the words of the author, uh, uh, Alex Verzbika, as a Polish woman, we are being imprisoned in English, imprisoned in English at the moment. English has become a present. It is not uh, the kind of medium which really puts everyone in touch with everyone else. It closes off certain areas in which we could form, find a common, a common uh, concern, a common interest, a common passion, and so on. Now, Afrikaans uh, is surprisingly, it's not as if it's in its death throes. It's surprisingly, there's more books printed in Afrikaans than books that are printed in English in South Africa. But how long can it survive? And if you haven't got a, some kind of feeder in the form of one or two universities in which the position of Afrikaans is actually safeguarded. And what I, what I do think, and this is what Neville Alexander was very interested always is that was very interested in the in the experiment to, to try and develop Zulu as a medium of instruction in Zululand, and uh, we, of course in Kata also uh, supported it. Chief Budulesi was very interested in that, but at the moment there is no within government, as far as I can ascertain, no one speaking up and say, "Look, we must try and we must much more uh, subtle and much more sophisticated approach towards languages." In the rest of my several scholars recently was here, uh, Mahmoud Mamdani, who said that Afrikaans is the best decolonizing initiative in Africa, in the sense that Afrikaners wouldn't have decolonized themselves mentally 
without that uh, development of accounts as a language, as a public language. Okay, uh, I'll take the last two questions uh, before we uh, close. The first one says, uh, as I uh, as argued by the panelists, that political interference is inevitable. How should then university governance structures ensure that government interference is honest and not self-beneficial to a certain group of high-profile government officials? And I want to ask you, Professor Barad, to uh, have the first bite on that one because you touched on those issues, all those issues in, in your input. So, so I, I, I would want to change the term somewhat because I think you have to make a distinction between political interference and politically intervening. Hmm. So I do not think that under our constitution and in, our, in terms of our policies and the Higher Education Act, there's any scope for government to interfere in universities. Cooperative governments requires government to engage with universities respectfully, understanding what their purposes and roles are, and to steer institutions using policy, using quality assurance, using funding, but not to interfere in universities. So I think that's a very important distinction we can make between steering. Our system is one of steering, not one of interference, because you do get that interference in many other parts of the world, including many other parts of Africa. So one of the things that happens at our institutions, fortunately, and I hope it carries on, that the, the vice chancellors of universities are not appointed by government. The minister has no say, quite rightly, and no uh, responsibility for the appointing of vice chancellors. Whereas in Nigeria, for example, in other parts of Africa, vice chancellors are appointed by the governor, by the state. Okay? So I just think it's important to clarify that point. No to interference, but certainly yes to steering. And there's nothing wrong with trying to steer institutions in a respectful and uh, way that's benefiting the country as a whole. Okay. Uh, Professor Twala said that there are pieces of work, research, uh, gathering dust in libraries. And so I want to believe the idea that the main problem for Africa knows uh, what to do, but is not doing it. Oh, I do believe the main, the idea that the main problem for Africa knows what to do, but is not going to do. Okay. Tricky for me. So what should then be done to get that information out there and solve African problems through their research findings and recommendations? Professor Fella? Thank you very much. Uh, the way forward is to, is to open up universities instead of being ivory towers, have communities at universities, have public lectures, take information to the communities and the communities to engage with because no community member will come to the library and read a 350-page uh, thesis in terms of get, to get the findings. Therefore, we must come with a simplified ways of, 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 of dispatching that kind of information, which is 350 pages into an hour of engagement with communities. So either communities are coming to the investors, we have done that before, but because of COVID, now we are having some restrictions, but we can also go to the communities. You get information from the communities. We interview community members of certain events, historical events, and then go back and also tell them what your findings were all about in order to 
to capacitate them. That is important. Thank you. Okay, as I ask uh, Mr. Temba Shasho, the Executive Director of Student Affairs, uh, to come, uh, like to do a closing for us, I'll take one last question to Professor Madonzela. Is the real transformation taking place at Stellenbosch currently, and where does she see this? Is institutional racism and discrimination finished, and the pain that minority students uh, still face? Right. Thank you. Racism has been inculcated over years, and so has sexism, mono religion, and many other forms of discrimination. And therefore, to get rid of racism is a process. I did say earlier that I'm proud of what's happening at Stellenbosch, but I'm not suggesting that we have reached the final summit, whether it's Kilimanjaro or Everest. We've summited several hills and we've summited several peaks. And if anybody wants to find out more, you're free to come to Stellenbosch. It's from visual redress, from the structuring of, uh, of um, the curriculum to the positions, who occupies positions at the university. We're not there yet, and somebody might even say the pace is not right. But I think this conversation was not about Stellenbosch University. I think this conversation was about should government intervene? And we've all said yes. And I like what one colleague has said, that government should not interfere, but it should intervene. And I've set up the parameters of intervening. And there were two. One is through, in terms of the UN principles of good governance, whatever government does should align with those eight principles of good governance, but it should also promote those principles of good governance at university governance. But secondly, ultimately, it should be in line with the vision in the Constitution, which is to create a society that is based on democratic values, social justice, and fundamental human rights. And much as I'm said about the language issues, and I do understand that it is a vexing issue. People should understand it's not between white Afrikaans-speaking people and um, white English-speaking people. If it's positioned like that, the majority of the people in this country fall through the cracks. And I think may want to look at technology, where instead of should we be teaching in English or should we be teaching in Afrikaans? We do two things. We start developing those African languages that we deliberately denigrated. And then secondly, when it comes to English, Afrikaans, and all of these languages, we do simultaneous translation. We, it doesn't matter what language the lecturer is speaking, each student gets the information in the language of their choice simultaneously. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Matozala. I wish we could continue this conversation, but unfortunately we have run out of time. In fact, we've run over by a good 18 or so minutes. Uh, special thanks to the university for making me part of this conversation. Special thanks to um, the uh, guests uh, for indulging me in some of my questions, I'm sure. Uh, you know, had little to do with what uh, we are talking about today, but thanks for allowing me to, I mean, for indulging me in any event. I'm now going to hand over to Mr. Tato 
flash up for a vote of thanks. Uh, good afternoon, um, everyone. Can you hear me, Mr. Mvoko? Yes, sir. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you, Program Director, for this opportunity. On behalf of University of Free State Executive, I wish to extend um, um, a, a word of gratitude to the panelists and uh, to the participant. We are grateful that you took your time to participate. Professor Madonsela, we are also grateful to you, Madam, for taking time from your busy schedule to come and share your wisdom and your insightful um, uh, deliberation with us. Uh, to Professor Badad, say we are highly grateful to, to you. Um, the conversations were very insightful, robust. I think Vuyo uh, um, was taking them as provocative. And I think the conversations were very prov provocative. We, we want to thank you as the University of Free State for availing yourselves. Uh, Professor Hilimo, uh, Professor Twala, we are grateful to you, colleagues, for availing yourselves. This has been a very insightful conversation. I think my take home from all your submission is overwhelming, but I could maybe extract one from each. Um, from you, Prof. Madonsela, you mentioned that um, if I harm you, I harm myself. For me, that was a, a great takeaway home. And to you, uh, Professor Badad, my take home is the efficacy of government intervention is necessary. I think for me, that is very insightful. Government does not interfere, it intervenes, as you correctly put it. Uh, colleagues, with those few words, we are highly grateful as the University of Free State, and thank you very much for your time. I thank you. <laughs>